I once heard a story of a violinist performing in a metro station. Now, of course, street musicians play for money in subways and metro stations around the world all the time. But this guy was no street musician. He played for 40 minutes and they set up video to watch what happened around him. And over those 40 minutes, 1,100 people walked on by. The video footage shows that only seven even momentarily paused to look at Joshua or listen to the music. The video footage showed no applause, no accolades, hardly any money put down. The newspaper called it a test of people's perceptions and priorities. Would people perceive the presence of an authentic violin master? Would they notice? Would they make it a priority to stop and to listen? Well, they didn't. It's an extraordinary story. But I think the story is also an indictment regarding our relationship with God. I wonder if we've stopped noticing God's faithfulness in our lives. If we stop and look around, we see it everywhere, but have we become too familiar with it? And so over time, our faith in God has dwindled. This was certainly a temptation for the Israelites in the promised land, wasn't it? Battle after battle after battle. They had seen God's faithfulness, but did they become numb to his greatness? Did their sense of awe die down over time? Well, as we see this morning, that in spite of the Israelites' struggles, great is God's faithfulness to them. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're continuing our study of God's faithfulness. If you turn there, it's the sixth book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you'll find Joshua there, the sixth book, and we'll begin with a look at chapter 11 today. And we're going to do something we haven't done before. We're going to attempt to preach through 11 chapters of Scripture. So I hope you packed your lunch today, because we're going to be here a while. Now, I'll be sure that we'll finish by 1 or 1.30 at the latest. Now, it is a long portion of Scripture. And at first glance, if you did some reading this week, or maybe you studied it in your small groups, you wondered, perhaps, at first, if there's anything in this passage to teach us. It's a passage filled with names and tribes and clans. But I think as we see this morning, there's quite a lot to glean from it. We have hardly enough time to dive into the riches of this text. To review where we've been over the past several weeks, we've looked at the first 10 chapters of Joshua, and we've seen that the people of God have crossed over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. We've seen them win battles in Jericho and in Ai, and last week against the Confederation of Kings in the South. The battles in the promised land were a grueling and demanding process. They weren't one hot summer's uh, battle. They extended up towards seven years of constant fighting to clear out the land. Well, God proves faithful in giving his people the land that he promised long ago. And that's what these pages from chapter 11 through chapter 21 are all about. It's the dividing of the land God had promised. And as we see this take place before our eyes, we'll see that the faithfulness of God has a profound effect on his people. And we'll look at three ways this morning. This will form our outline as we seek to do an overview of this passage. The first point is God's faithfulness 
fuels action. God's faithfulness fuels action. Second point is God's faithfulness stifles anxiety. God's faithfulness stifles anxiety. And thirdly, and finally, God's faithfulness delivers hope. God's faithfulness delivers hope. Let's start with the first point. God's faithfulness fuels action. Let me read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 11 as we begin. When Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Ashaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphath, Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Well, Hazor here is the ringleader of another coalition. And this coalition is bent on stopping Israel. He's the dominating partner of these allies. Just as Adonai Zedek led a coalition to the south, Hazor is gathering a coalition to the north. Now as you read this, do you wonder in passages like this, while the author didn't just cut us a break and tell us that there were lots and lots of kings and lots and lots of cities that went up against Israel. Well, but see then, reading this would lose its punch. It's precisely in reading this extended, detailed, particularizing description of Israel's opposition that you begin to feel just how overwhelming this enemy really is. In fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, has said that the combined forces of these Canaanite armies would have numbered 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. This must have been the greatest achievement, greatest engagement of Joshua's distinguished career. And the numbers were great, but the chariots were the scariest thing because for the first time here in the land of Canaan, Joshua and the Israelites would face chariots. And verse 4 says, The army was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This was a massive and extremely strong army. And we don't know if Joshua was afraid. But perhaps he was strengthened by remembering what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, will be with you. Or Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we, we will boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. So regardless of any fear that Joshua may have felt, as we see God's faithfulness fuels his action. This thought naturally brings up then the question of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. What's the correlation between the two? Well, divine sovereignty is the belief that God ordains and is in control over everything that happens in the universe. 
There's nothing that surprises God. God doesn't take risks. And ultimately, nothing happens outside of his jurisdiction, his control, and his planning. All comes under his rule and reign. And so some allege then if God ordains something as certain, it, it would then render human effort as irrelevant. We just kind of let go and let God. But Joshua knew better. His view was not to let go, but to grab hold. Divine sovereignty actually creates confidence. Divine sovereignty doesn't negate human activity. It stimulates it. It calls forth our effort even to the point of reckless abandon. One author puts it, that God's sovereignty is not a doctrine that shackles us, but a reality that liberates us. Not a cloud that stifles, but an elixir that invigorates. Well, in this case, Joshua uses some advanced planning to attack some of the rebels. The text says Joshua attacked Jabin's forces in their camp by the waters of Merim. Merim was in upper Galilee, about 4,000 feet above sea level, over 1,000 meters. It wasn't conducive to chariot maneuvering. And Joshua negated any tactical advantage their vast chariots or horses could give. So just because God promised victory was not a reason for Joshua not to use his brains, to use his strategy. R.C. Sproul points out that there's a great difference between believing in God and believing God. He said many people will say they believe in God, that is that they admit he exists, but they do not believe him. They don't believe what he says. Now, Joshua, like the other heroes of the faith, believed in God and acted on that belief. God told him to be strong and courageous, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And God's faithfulness in these moments fueled Joshua's action. So much so that down in verse 15, it says Joshua obeyed completely. That he left nothing undone. That he did it all. That is the devotion of faith. Joshua displayed faithful action in obedience. He's a wonderful example to us. But not only Joshua, as you read these chapters, we see another hero of the faith in Caleb. Caleb, along with Joshua, had the courage to stand alone and give a minority report, even though it nearly cost him his life. These were the only two spies, as you know, who 45 years earlier had said that God has given this land over to them. Now there is, I suppose, such a thing as mathematical faith that refuses to move unless it is, has it all worked out on its calculator. And then there is a faith that looks upon the faithful almighty God who delights to surprise his people with his goodness. A faith that loves to venture itself on such a God. Well, Caleb had this faith. He measured the giants against God. The other ones measured the giants against themselves. They had great giants and a little God. Caleb had little giants and a great God. Now, friends, I ask you as you sit here this morning, how big is your God today? Is he big enough to deliver you from whatever you're going through this morning? Oh, Caleb had waited 45 years. But as always, God delivers faithfully. You know, how discouraging it must have been for him and Joshua. I mean, they're saying to the people, they're saying to the tribes, let's go into the land. 
Our God has given it to us. These giants are nothing in the hands of a holy and righteous and sovereign, all-powerful God. And yet the generation just dismissed them. You can imagine how Joshua and Caleb thought as they walked and wandered in the desert. I wonder what they would have felt with each step of their sandals in the sand. With each kilometer walked and the sun bearing down upon them day after day as they trekked through the desert in circles. And they see an entire generation die off. And yet look at chapter 15, verse 11. Caleb says that he's still as strong and faithful as ever before. I mean, how did this happen? Well, throughout this passage, Caleb refers to the anchor of faith. I mean, five times Caleb hammers this point home. In verse 9, his request is for nothing but what God had promised him. Now, true faith always functions this way. It pleads God's promises. True faith always functions as one who anchors himself or herself upon the truths of the word of God. There can be no other foundation for faith. Caleb perseveres for decades in the wilderness because he was acting in faith according to the word of God. Now we can easily make mistakes here. We, I think as humans, often try to base our faith on our feelings. If so, we'll feel like unbelievers much of the time. Sometimes we place our faith in faith. That is, we believe that if we have enough faith, we'll be able to weather the storm. We forget that great faith is not so necessary as genuine faith. It's not so much great faith in God that is required as faith in a great God. Tim Keller often shares the illustration that if someone falls off a cliff and on the way down they see a branch strong enough to hold them, they won't be helped if they just notice the branch and its evidence of sturdiness. They must grab onto it to commit to it lest they fall. So even if they only have a small amount of faith in the branch's ability to hold them, if they reach out and grab it, and only if they reach out and grab it, can they be saved. Only then can they, can they move from probability to certainty. Now see, weak faith in a strong object is infinitely better than a strong faith in a weak object. Now Joshua and Caleb's faith is the biblical pattern. It is in God himself to give them victory. It is in God himself to bring his promises to fruition. Verses 10 through 11 reveal this faith. And now look at how Yahweh has kept me alive as he promised. These 45 years. And now look how I am today, 85 years old. And yet I remain as strong today as the day when Moses sent me off. My strength is the same now as then for war and for going out and for coming in. See, God's faithfulness fueled Caleb's actions. So friends, I ask you, what is the object of your faith this morning? Do you roll out of bed on a daily basis trusting in your favorable circumstances that you've worked so hard to set up? Or did your feet touch the ground with confidence each morning that the God who sustained your life and breath through the night is with you even to the end of the age? Is your faith in this God? Are you acting in accordance with that faith? 
Or would people in your life say that based on the way you behave and the way you speak and the way you worry, that you have not a single hope in the world that God can sustain you by his power? No, it is God's faithfulness that fuels our action. It fueled Caleb. It fueled Joshua. It fuels the people of God. Well, there's a second point to consider about God's faithfulness in our pastors. It's the second point in our outline. We also see that God's faithfulness stifles anxiety. It stifles anxiety. Chapter 11, verses 16 through 23, I won't read it and we don't have it overhead, but this is an overall summary of the whole conquest. The last entry is the defeat of the Anakim. Now, the very mention of the Anakim probably doesn't send chills up your spine, does it? It's probably because you've never heard of them. You certainly have never seen any of them. Well, who are they? Well, Numbers chapter 13 says that they were the incredible hulks of the land of Canaan. They were the superheroes. And 40 years earlier, Israel was sure that even God's help couldn't avail against these hulks, these big bruisers. In Israel's dictionary, the Anakim spelled terror. That's why it's interesting to meet the Anakim in Joshua 11 and to read that Joshua simply cut them off. No, God's power is adequate to meet our most dreadful fears. All that buildup from the spies that went out and God just takes these giants out. Hardly a mention of it in the passage. And I like how in Pilgrim's Progress... The great John Bunyan describes an interesting scene in which the main character, whose name is Christian, approaches the palace beautiful where he hoped to get lodging. Now he began to walk down a narrow passageway to the porter's lodge. And along the way, he became terrified because he saw two lions standing in his way. Then in the story, Bunyan adds parenthetically that the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Friends, I think this is frequently the case for us. We fear because we don't see the chains. We have anxiety because we don't see the chains. And yet the fact that Christ sits at the Father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and has all things under his feet means that he has the power that would destroy everything. That every power that could destroy us is chained. But sometimes we don't see the chains. We don't see the change precisely because we lose sight of God's faithfulness, and so our faith is weakened. No, faith in God always stifles anxiety. That's why in chapter 12, the author goes into such detail. You might think the authors, again, could do the readers a kindness by foregoing these comments in chapter 12. I mean, it appears to be sheer tedium. After all, the king of Hormah, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of uh, Adalam doesn't exactly engulf the reader in a glow of devotional warmth, does it? It doesn't seem to be awe-inspiring. We don't sing these names in songs. I mean, how can pondering such material prepare you for a day at the office or school or time with the kids? But it is devotional. There's a reason that all scriptures God breathe and profitable for us. 
And what we have in chapter 12 is a checklist of all the kings that were defeated by the Israelites. I mean, think about it. The king of Jericho, check. The king of Ai, check. The king of Jerusalem, check. The king of Hebron, check. The king of Jarmuth, check. The king of Lachish, check. The list includes 31 kings whom Israel defeated. The list only appears monotonous. John Calvin assessed it correctly when he said, But though each of those now summarily, summarily, uh, summarily mentioned was previously given more in detail, there is very good reason for here placing before our eyes, as it were, a living picture of the goodness of God, proving that there had been a complete ratification and performance of the covenant made with Abraham as given in the words, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Now this chapter, if you read chapter 12 later on today, it's not dry reading. It is all about the goodness of God. It is an itemization of God's goodness. It's not tedium. It's thanksgiving. The king of Tapua, the king of Hefer, those words are not an excerpt from a dull archive. They are the lyrics of a song. These verses constitute the stanzas for Israel's version of great is thy faithfulness. Because God's ancient promises had proven faithful. Each conquered king is a sign of God's faithfulness. And friends, I think much of our despondency comes from failing to remember what God has really done. We've talked about this throughout this book. That we would all do well to take time to remember This is always the method of biblical faith. It is as faith gives thanks in detail that faith is nurtured, encouraged, and takes on fresh heart to expect more mercies. But friends, does your prayer life indicate this? We talked last week about the power of dependence. Do your prayers consist of trite generalizations like, thank you God for your many blessings, or are you cognizant of the specific things that God is doing in your life. It would do you well, it would do all of us well for our faith to name two or three of these specific blessings when we pray. To consider God's faithfulness specifically like what we see listed here in the book of Joshua. To remind ourselves daily of God's faithfulness so that God's greatness doesn't become so commonplace. That we don't get so busy that we just fail to notice it anymore. Or that we lose our sense of awe, like those in the metro station walking by the violinist. Noah's familiarity with the things of God, has it caused you to lose your awe? Maybe you're a small group leader, or maybe you're here in full-time ministry, and you've been ministering for quite some time that Scripture just doesn't excite you anymore. Maybe you've spent so much time ministering and sharing the gospel that you've lost wonder at the sovereign planner who guides through every moment. Or maybe you've been a Christian for so long that you can think back to the good old days, those early days after you believed when you were excited about who God was and what God has done. But now, years later, you sit back and you've just lost your awe. You've lost your wonder. Artists talk of the dynamic of Visual lethargy. That the more you see something, the less you actually see it. I I remember the first day I drove down Sheikh Zayed Road. You know, the 
place where all the tall buildings come right up against the highway. And I remember those first few times driving, just staring at all the buildings, just being in awe of what was there. Unlike anything I'd ever seen before, I'm looking and I'm admiring it and excited that I live in such a place. Well, now after driving the 200th time and the 2,000th time, much like many of you, instead of being in awe of what I see, I'm frustrated at the traffic and start talking to the cars, begging them to move faster so I can get to where I'm going. I've lost my awe. I've lost the sense of wonder. You know, what happens seems inevitable, but it's not good. We've quit seeing, and in our failure to see, we've quit being moved. We've quit being thankful. The beauty that once attracted you is still there, but you don't see it. You cannot celebrate what you don't see. If this is you this morning, stop and consider God's faithfulness in your life. In my preparation, I jotted down three things that we might do to inspire our awe of, of God. One, one I thought of was to go to a, an awe-inspiring place regularly. To go to a spot in the city that draws you to worship of the great creator, that points you to the great gospel of Christ. For me, I, I love going down to the Dubai Creek, not far from here. I love the creek. I love the markets. I love the smell of the spices. I love the people all around. I love taking trips on the Abra across. In those moments, I'm reminded of God's faithfulness in creation. I'm reminded of all the people that I see that God has created them. And seeing God's creativity and brilliance in his creation moves me to worship God. A second thing I'd encourage you to do is to prepare your family to eagerly anticipate Friday mornings here with the Saints of Redeemer Church of Dubai. If you're a parent, make this the highlight of your week as a family. Spread the excitement that your family will be with the people of God. Pray for the service together. Read the passage we'll preach on. Maybe not all of Joshua 11 through 21. It might take a while, but read the passage that we're going to preach on in the service. Pray through it. Prepare your hearts and remind yourselves and your family at the wonder and beauty of gathering together with the saints to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Prepare your family's hearts to be overwhelmed by God's faithfulness. And third, I'd encourage you to start writing down your prayers. Maybe you're not a big journaler. I'm not either. But perhaps you can start a small prayer journal. Perhaps on the left side of the page, you can write out your prayers and date them. And then as you see your prayers answered, on the right-hand side, you can jot those answers down. You can come back to this time and time again as a treasure trove of God's faithfulness to you. Now, obviously, God will answer all your prayers in the exact way you think they should be answered every time. But what will happen is your faith will be strengthened as you see God's faithfulness to answer. It'll be a sweet reminder of his work in your life, lest we forget. And a fourth thing that I would do is each morning when you wake up, to remind yourself of the gospel. That's why we talk about it so often here, is to preach to yourself in spite of what's on your calendar that day, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your pain, to remind yourself of the good news that God saves sinners. And that as a believer in Christ, God has saved you. Lest that news ever get old, let's continue to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness always stifles anxiety. What's the second thing? But there's a third thing that I want us to look at in this passage. And that's the third point. It's that God's faithfulness delivers hope. 
God's faithfulness delivers hope. And so we've made it through chapter 12 and the long list of kings. But probably even the most stout-hearted reader of Joshua begins to crumble and nod off for a nap as he reads chapters 13 through 21. I mean, chasing a Canaanite out of the hill country is far more stimulating than counting villages and tracing borders, isn't it? I mean, watching war movies always tends to be more exciting than participating in land surveys. I mean, I can't imagine any director or producer making a movie of land surveys. You can imagine, here's your land. Here's your land for two hours. No one, no one of us would watch that. We'd go through buckets and buckets of buttery popcorn just to survive. It'd be incredibly boring. But the problem in this passage is that we're too detached to understand what was really going on. You might think these lists are incredibly dull. Certainly a text listing city after city, Mayon, Carmel, Ziph, Judah, doesn't exactly stir sermonic juices or suggest warm devotional thoughts. He calls trees by name. He names brook by brook. I mean, as a reader of this, we don't know these places. We've never been there. We can't even picture them. I mean, if this were an action novel, we would have already finished the book and be looking at the footnotes or reading the credits at the end of the movie. But for the Israelite, this material describes their inheritance. Imagine that you're quite poor. Imagine you have worn shoes, tattered clothes, living in a crowded shelter. You have no home. You have no things. And then you get notice that a rich relative has just passed away. And you are written in their will. Now when you come to hear that will, do you think you would be dozing off unconcerned? No, that wouldn't be your approach at all. You would have prepared for this. You would have gotten a good night's sleep. You would have drunk ten Red Bulls that morning just to be alert, just to be awake. You would be on your game. It's a big day. Your ears are wide open, wondering what's coming your way. That list, every detail, you bet it would matter. I mean, these folks lived out of a suitcase. They had wandered for years. Centuries of expectations now waiting on these chapters. And it wasn't so that they could get grandfather clocks or old sets of dishes. There were whole cities, whole lands coming to them. This is the flower of God's faithfulness following the seed of promise in Genesis 15. Now what can be dull about that? I mean, the mention of every town, name, and border point pulsates with excitement. Kabzeel, Eber, Jagger, Kinah, Demona, Adabah, Kadesh, Hazor, Ithnan, Ziph, Telem, Baaloth. And the list just goes on and on. Dozens of cities just in chapter 15 given to the tribe of Judah alone. And the author wants us to imagine these lands, to put on our hiking shoes and to go on a walk with him, to picture the valleys, the, the plains, the fertile prairies, and the running brooks. He wants us to imagine these places, lands they would have known, not empty lands, but plentiful places. You know, these chapters are a hymn of praise to God for giving Israel what he had promised. God's faithfulness delivers hope. Throughout these chapters, the writer betrays a constant concern to stress that all Israel, all 12 tribes receive their share of the land inheritance. But not just tribes, specific families are blessed as well. In chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, we get the story of Zelophehad. 
He's a guy who had five daughters and no sons. That sounds pretty good to us. It certainly sounds good to Brian Parks, who's got four daughters. But in the ancient times, there's a problem if you didn't have a son, you didn't have a male heir. If you didn't have one, it would be passed, your inheritance would be passed on to someone else. And so we wonder, will these five daughters be ignored? Will they be forgotten? Well, if you take a look at chapter 17 later on in your devotional time this afternoon, you'll see that not only did they receive a reward, the text implies that they received not one portion, but five. How kind of God to give us that story. A sweet reminder that God doesn't just care about the nations, but has particular care for individuals, not just for the wealthy, not just for the powerful, but God is faithful to the marginalized and has special care for them. We see the same thing down in chapter 20 with the cities of refuge that were established in the promised land. These were something akin to sanctuaries. It was a safe place for those who were involved in an accident that caused death. Now, not for murderers, but for those who then, because of the accidental death, be the target of revenge from these families. And so they would flee to these cities of refuge to be safe, where justice could be heard in safety. No, friends, God was utterly concerned for those with no inheritance and with those fleeing for safety. The friends, I reach out to you this morning and ask, have you come here today thinking that God is unconcerned with your plight. Maybe your situation is so desperate you're wondering if he even takes notice. Friends, there is no child of God outside of God's care. No matter what nation or background you come from, no matter what physical ailment you're dealing with, no matter how full or empty your bank account is at the moment, God cares for you. But notice that he doesn't necessarily bring the same circumstances for everyone. I mean, consider how the land was divided for his people. In chapter 14, verse 2, we read again that the dividing of the land was done by the casting of lots. We've seen that this was a God-ordained way at the time to see what God had decided. And we notice through chapters 14 and 19 that the land and the value and size of the lands were different for the different tribes. Somehow in God's sovereign choice, this was the plan. Each tribe didn't receive equal portion. Now friends, whatever you're going through, whatever lot God has chosen for you, doesn't mean that he loves you any less than someone who appears to have more in that particular area. Now God's faithfulness is not conditioned on what you perceive you've received. Furthermore, there's not any particular culture more loved by God than another. All of us are made in the image of God and have the same image of God that we bear. Now, the Canaanites were not destroyed because of their skin, but because of their sin. It wasn't ethnic cleansing. It was judgment for wickedness. God's people received different land, not because of their works, but because of God's sovereign grace according to his divine wisdom. And the fact that God is sovereign over all of our lives, friends, ought to bring us much hope today. It should be the end of all complaining, quarreling, and discontent because we rest that everything in our lives has been determined by God. As the Israelite territory was passed out by God's decision, all of your life is under the mighty hand of God. Every circumstance. Nothing out of his dominion, out of his control. No, God's faithfulness delivers hope. 
Have you forgotten this hope? So the victory of God achieved over Canaan is both a preview and a pledge of the time when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord. When in Revelation 11.15, it says, He shall reign forever and ever. See, every one of God's victories over his enemies in the process of history is a partial portrayal of his victory over all the enemies at the consummation of history. We can say that Israel's concrete and tangible inheritance in Canaan is a foreshadowing of our own. Our full inheritance in the new heavens and a new earth, not in some earthless or fleshless void. First Peter 1 says that this inheritance will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So friends, our full expectation is that there is a day coming that after whatever suffering you go through on this earth, hope will be delivered. And such rest and peace will lastingly come only when Christ visibly conquers all of his and all of our enemies. So that's the promise of Joshua 21. That God gave Israel rest when he defeated his enemies. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory and our rest. Friends, God promises to make all things right. But I must urge you, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that this is a scary truth. God calls all those who don't worship him his enemies. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that he will punish those who don't know him and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that punishment is everlasting destruction. Friend, every one of us, you and me, we've all rebelled against a holy God who created us in his image to be in relationship with him. Romans 6 tells us that our punishment is death, that all of us sit under God's judgment apart from Christ. And yet 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That there is a way to God, that Christ, fully God and fully man, came from heaven to be our Redeemer. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead, proving his divinity. And though we're not guilty in the same way as those who fled to the cities of refuge here in the book of Joshua, those who fled to the city of refuge for safety, they were stuck there in the cities until the day that the high priest died. And at that point, they were able to be released and to be freed. Well, this foreshadows the death of Christ, where the great high priest dies himself, so that all those who believe in Christ may go free into the ultimate city of refuge. And Romans 10 says the way into this city is by confessing with our mouth and believing with our heart that he is the one and only Savior of the world. It's through repenting of our sin and believing in him that he promises to save us. My friends, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, do so today. Do it now. Repent of your sin and believe in him, and he will save you and take you into this ultimate rest. Well, as we conclude, look down at the very last verses in our passage in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. One can only describe this passage as one of praise. Praise to God for complete thorough and persistent fidelity to his promises. 
We see a bit of what I like to call sledgehammer theology in these verses. The author keeps pounding his point home. Look at this, verse 43. The Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers. Verse 44. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Verse 45, not one of all the Lord's promises failed. Every one was fulfilled. Oh, friends, friends, place your faith in this God. All his promises come true. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, great is your faithfulness. Father, you never change. Your compassions never fail. As you have been, you will forever be. Father, your mercies are new each morning. You have pardoned our sin by the blood of Christ. And you sustain us each day in your sovereign grace. Oh, Father, we pray that our congregation would be marked by faith in you. Our always faithful God. Oh, with your faithfulness fuel our actions Father, would your faithfulness stifle our anxieties and would your faithfulness deliver hope as we look forward to that day when you will come back and return to us. Oh, faithful God, we love you and we praise you. And it's in the glorious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.